thank you, Jesus. Father, we worship you today. We thank you for your heart. We thank you that your heart is for us, Lord. We're humbled by the thought that you are in pursuit of us. You're not the one that plays hard to get. Father, you're actually in pursuit of us and your heart, your desire is to gather us together. Jesus, you said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how I have longed to gather your children together under my wing, like a hen gathers its chicks under their wing, but you would not let me. Father, as we sing I will give you all my worship, Lord. I pray uh, that that a revelation of that would just settle upon us because you are a God who just desires to pour out on us so much. There is so much more. And we have barely scratched the surface. And you're just, you're looking for worshipers, true worshipers that will worship you in spirit and truth. True worshipers who come to you holding nothing with empty hands, prepared to receive all that you have. And God, you are taking this church on a journey today. You're taking us on a journey of surrender. And I pray, Father, for a breakthrough to take place today, Father, that that every word that comes from my mouth, God, would penetrate the hardest of hearts and you would bring us to a place, God, where we would come to your feet with empty hands and God, just unload everything that we carry that is too important, that has become an idol in our life. God, so that we can experience the abundant life that you died to give us, Lord God. This is your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, Father, we just want to put our lives in your hands because you can do so much more with our lives than we can, Father God. You can do so much more with my time than I can. You can do so much more with my gifts and talents than I can. You can do so much more with my money than I can. So, Father, I surrender it to you. And as a church, God, bring us to that place. Holy Spirit, convict hearts today and bring us to that place because you love your church you love us so much father and i pray for a fresh revelation of that love god that would just stir within our hearts a desire to give you our everything because our everything in your hands is always more than enough and we thank you and we give you praise jesus god i pray for that person carrying stuff today they came in feeling heavy because they're carrying things that they're not supposed to carry. I give them permission right now to lay them down in Jesus' name. God, I pray for that person who's battling sin in their life or addiction in their life, that person who's struggling with depression today, and I break the strongholds off of them in the name of Jesus Christ, and I pronounce their freedom today in Jesus' name. We thank you, Father. We thank you for the work that you're already beginning to do and the work that you're going to continue to do throughout our time together and beyond. We worship you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Church, can we just give him some praise as you find your way to your seats? God is so good. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Was that awesome or was that awesome? Great job, worship team. Thank you so much for 
being used of the Lord this morning. Didn't they do a great job, guys? Not only do they sing beautifully and play beautifully, but man, they are just so in tune with what God is doing and what he's wanting to speak to our church today. There's nothing like getting up to preach when you've had an incredible time in God's presence, singing along with your worship team. I appreciate you guys so much. Well, welcome. Um, This is now part five of the series that we're currently in called Circle the Wagons. There comes a time in the life of a church where we have to turn in toward one another we got to take a, a deep look inside, and we got to encourage one another to turn our eyes back on Jesus. And that's where this whole concept of Circle of the Wagons came. And uh, for those of you who haven't heard, it came to me in a dream, actually, where I was trying to rally the church together and, and get them uh, you know, motivated to head into the year 2023 and to not sleepwalk and go through the motions anymore. And in this dream, the phrase Circle the Wagons came to me, which reminded me of the old westerns that my dad used to make me watch. And there was a common scene in many of them where they'd be traveling uh, by stagecoach and they'd go through this canyon and little did they know there was an enemy lurking in the canyon until an arrow flew and struck someone in the chest and chaos ensued and nobody knew what to do until finally somebody stood up and took charge and said, circle the wagons. And as they turned in toward one another, they, they were able to assess their situation. They were able to rally together and unify under one purpose. And they were able to focus on the enemy at hand. And this year, God is calling us to take new territory. This year, God, God's destiny for Fountain of Life is, is so far beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine. But we can't go into it sleepwalking. And so week one, we learned that circling the wagons for us means that we need to wake up. The areas of our life that we've fallen asleep, we need to wake up. And in week two, uh, we talked about remembering our first love This God was challenging that church saying that you have forgotten your first love. And so we have to recapture that first love. Then we talked about the church that was going through a lot of persecution. And the message to that church was don't quit. Sometimes it's that simple. Just don't quit. You're on the right track, but you're facing a lot of adversity and and the desire to quit just comes upon you. And sometimes it's what they call the quiet quit. So where you keep showing up, but your heart just isn't in it anymore. Don't quit because every little attention to detail matters. Every ounce of passion and energy you put in it, when you do it for God, it matters and it makes a difference. And we don't always see the impact that it's having. But in the unseen realm, man, it's causing earthquakes. God is shaking stuff up and principalities and and, and, and evil forces are being taken down. Don't quit. Last week, we heard about a compromising church that had started to compromise its values. And as a result, uh, they had become corrupted and weak. And we were challenged not to compromise, but to hold the line. And this week, we're talking about something that goes hand in hand with compromise. See, don't compromise is a, a negative command, right? To not do something. Have you ever found that with your children, Um, sometimes a little rephrasing of it can kind of change the way they're thinking. Like, quit getting out of your seat. Quit getting out of your seat. And you switch that to, sit down, please. Stay in your chair, please. 
Sometimes just that little shifting uh, creates a different mindset in the mind of the child and sometimes it makes them comply. Other times it doesn't. Let's be real. But to this church, there's a church in, in Thyatira that we're going to be talking about today, which is a fun word to say, Thyatira. I looked it up on Google to make sure I was pronouncing it correctly. Um, you ever look up those YouTube videos where they just keep reading the word like over and over again for 60 seconds? That's what I did. Thyatira. Tyra. And this church in Thyatira uh, was accused of compromise, a lot like the church of Pergamum that we talked about last week. But specifically, the approach that Jesus takes is to call them out. And what's happening is he's encouraging them to pursue holiness. To, to not just resist temptation and resist evil, but to actively pursue holiness that they could, should continue to try to grow in the area of holiness. There was a boy uh, who grew up in the Philippines. And one day, a young python showed up at his front door. And he uh, took a liking to this python. And he started playing with the python. And eventually, he adopted the python as his very own pet. And the python was a lot smaller at the time, but he began to grow to a very, very large size. But even in its full-grown state, this young boy would actually lay down and take naps with this python, sleep with this python. Now, as you can see, that python is probably large enough to swallow that little boy. And yet his parents were okay with it. They talked about the special bond that he and this snake had and, um, and how he, he's, just, he's known this snake for as long as he can remember. They've got this bond that was formed in childhood and so they have complete trust over this python. How many of you would trust your child with a python of that size? Not me. I don't care how long they've been buddies, right? Because sooner or later, I'm worried that mother nature's instincts are going to kick in and my child's going to be a snack. And so the threat of this boy being swallowed is actually very real. I mean, if you read about um, pythons of these large sizes like this, you'll hear stories about how uh, they would swallow like young deer, like, like young infant, not infant, but like young youth animals, right? Before they're maybe full size, but still very, very large. And they have the ability, as you know, most snakes to dislocate their jaw and expand their body and swallow things whole. And so the threat of this boy being devoured in my mind is very real. But listen to this, because the snake started out small, he became familiar with it. See, when we become familiar with any amount of sin, we need to understand that the threat of being devoured becomes very real. See, many Christians have become familiar with things in their lives that they should not be familiar with, with the very thing that seeks to devour them. See, it may seem on the surface that there's different levels of sin and some that are uh, somewhat damaging, some that are a little bit more damaging, some that are really damaging. But in reality, the spirit that wants to devour is the same spirit that's behind them all. And so to open up our discussion today at your tables, I want to discuss this question. How have you seen sin start out small, but grow into something that devours? Okay, so this could be an example in your life, someone else's life, something you've experienced or something you have observed. But at your tables, how have you seen sin start out small, 
but grow into something that can devour. So let's talk about it. All right. Well, I know that time flies (laughs) when you're having a good discussion at your table. Uh, Somebody at my table was talking about sin, and he said, hey, you need to quit petting the python. You need to cut his head off, right? I think that pretty much captures it, is that we have too many snake handlers in God's church where we think, you know what? I can do this. I can handle this. And um, we flirt with temptation, but we don't see the ugly behind it. Uh, I preached a message here a few years ago, actually, called The Devil You Don't Know. And it just really dove into just kind of a dark topic, just the, the wickedness of Satan and how he takes everything that God meant for good and he twists it and corrupts it. And his, his intention is to downplay it and to make it seem like it's innocent, to get us close enough so that he can trap us. You know, it's like a mousetrap. A mousetrap might have some cheese or some peanut butter on it. There's nothing wrong with that cheese or that peanut butter. And sometimes, you know, the mouse or the rat actually gets the cheese and doesn't get caught. All that does is embolden the rats. Maybe they're more aggressive next time and the next time... There you go, pow, that's right. But we need to take a strong approach against sin. And so the challenge this morning is to pursue holiness, understanding that there's an enemy whose sole purpose is to destroy you with sin. And the best way to avoid falling into his trap is to pursue holiness, amen? So stand with me, if you would, please, with your Bibles, And we are going to read from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18 today. But before we do, we're going to make this faith statement uh, to our own souls today. Sometimes we need to hear ourselves say it out loud. Amen. All right. So if you would read along with me on the screen as you hold your Bibles or your phones up, if that's how you read your Bible. One, two, three. Here we go. This is my Bible. It is God's word. When I read it and live it, I will become everything it says that I am. Who's interested in becoming everything that this book says you are? Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. That's through the end of the chapter. This is, this is a very long one here, okay? So I'm going to try to read it with uh, excitement and, and drama to pull you in, okay? All right, verse 18. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, that calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. 
I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searched out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them. Depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father. And I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Father, illuminate your scripture to us today. Give us understanding. And Holy Spirit, uh, God, apply it to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, that was a lot. Now, Thyatira, let me tell you a little bit about Thyatira. Thyatira was a Macedonian colony founded by Alexander the Great. Anybody ever heard of him? After the overthrow of the Persian Empire, it was a small town of little significance in comparison to the other cities that we read about in the seven churches that are addressed in Revelation. Okay, so small church, small town. Um, you could probably call it a blue-collar town. There were eight major trades, and um, pretty much if you lived there, you worked in one of those eight major trades. Now, if you belong to one of these trades, you also belong to a trade guild, kind of like a, 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 a union, right? A workers' alliance type of thing. And these unions, these guilds, were directly tied to paganism. Highly, highly pagan. And so what would happen is if you were working and you were part of these guilds, you were definitely strongly influenced by pagan practices, if you lived there, you were probably a tradesman. And if you were a tradesman, you were a part of a guild. And so while many churches faced persecution, maybe unto death, or maybe people didn't want to sell to them, um, in this situation, if you stood for Jesus and you stood for the one true God while uh, you're in this uh, polytheistic society, then you risked the loss of your job. Imagine that. Losing your job because of your beliefs. And so he opens up saying, this is the message from the Son of God. And we've taken some time each week to, um, to understand why Jesus introduces himself the way he does to each church. Because he changes it up every time. And we find their significance uh, because of a point he's trying to make and who he's actually talking to. So he starts off introducing himself as the son of God because many worshipped Apollo, who was the sun god. And as the son of Zeus, he was also called the son of God. And so it's like Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. I am the son of God. And so you call him the sun god, but I'm the one with eyes of fire, which he goes on to say, whose eyes are like flames of fire. And so you call him the son of God, but I am the one and only begotten son of God. All the other sons of God are just imitating. So won't the real son of God please stand up? Please stand up. Okay, that's for all of you that grew up in the early 2000s. All right. 
says, whose eyes are like flames of fire. What I love about this was when he describes his eyes, flames of fire make you think of eyes that are piercing, right? Not only do they get your attention, but you know when they're focused upon you. See, this is the small church that has caught his gaze. And he was reminding them that he sees them. But beyond that, they were piercing eyes. They see beyond the surface to their very, very hearts. And we see, we see him refer to that later, talking about our thoughts and intentions. And we'll get more into that. But he cares about the heart. And he's able to discern it with 100% accuracy. I think we mentioned this briefly last week. You and I, we can't determine the intentions of someone else. We can't, we can't inter- interpret the, the contents of someone's heart. We can try to guess, but only Jesus does it with 100% accuracy. And then he introduces himself with the man who has feet that are like polished bronze. Bronze feet may symbolize that all of his ways are gloriously just and holy, some theologians have, have speculated. They could also represent immense strength and stability that he walked with. Remember how he introduced himself as the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands? The seven gold lampstands, remember, represents the churches. And so it could be that he's making the statement that I I walk among your tiny little church that may seem uh, insignificant. And with my fiery eyes, I see the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And I walk among you with that same strength and stability. And those who walk with me share that same strength and stability because when you're small and you feel insignificant how many of you know sometimes you can feel weak you can feel like you're not enough like we were seeing it earlier today and so Jesus says I see you and my strength is with you this morning I want to give you three ways to pursue holiness in your life that I feel like is highlighted in this passage three ways to pursue holiness in your life number one is this Keep improving. Keep improving. See, this is, a, this is a mindset, I believe. A mindset that says, I'm not done. When in reality, a lot of us have settled into a place of comfort where we would not say it out loud, but we feel within, we're done. Like, yep, I'm done cooking. I'm a Christian now. And I came out a Christian. And I'm going to be a Christian for the rest of my days. Everything's good forgetting that God has so much more for us. And so we have to keep improving. And he says this. This is a a commendation he gives to the church in Thyatira. In verse 19, he says, I have seen your love. I've seen your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and your constant improvement in these things. Your constant improvement in these things. He's saying that what he sees that he's encouraged by in this church is that not only are they um, uh, doing these things right, but they're pursuing them more and more and trying to grow in those areas. I had a pastor um, in Red Oak, Texas, Pastor Scott Wilson, who used to say, you got to grow or you got to go. And that was kind of his mantra to his leadership and, and sometimes he may be extended to the church. Like, look, the reason why you're here is to grow because the church is a living organism and if you're not growing, then you're dying. And if you're not changing and you're, you're no longer convicted by the Holy Spirit, a challenge to, to, to surrender things to him, then that means you're dying. See, this is how the church is supposed to function. We're supposed to be growing 
And in our pursuit of holiness, we grow. Ephesians 4, 16 says, he, Jesus, makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. See, we can only improve individually and corporately when we do our part. Have you ever stopped to think about your part and how that affects the growth of those, not just yourself, but the growth of those around you? We have to be active. We have to be engaged and we have to constantly be pursuing this holiness and pursuing growth. No one has ever gotten in shape by watching somebody else work out. Right, you can, like, you can now, you can subscribe to Beachbody, right, and have like an a sh- online streaming service so that you have access to absolutely every workout video that Beachbody has ever created. But if all I do is watch them, I'm not going to get in shape, am I? I might become thoroughly educated in fitness. I might memorize every single exercise I might even memorize the diet plan that goes along with it. But if I don't put effort into actually doing the movements and actually be disciplined in my diet myself, then I'll see zero results. None of the results. And yet, so often we come into church with that mentality. It's all about how much I know. What's something new that Pastor Joe can teach me today that's not elementary, but it's deeper? And this is exactly what this church was dealing with. As they went deeper, Jesus says they got deep into the things of Satan. Because knowledge outside of application and obedience puffs up. And that's all it does. And so we come into church so often with that mentality that I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to receive and suddenly I'm going to feel closer to Jesus because of it. When in reality, there's something that God wants to give you that he can only give you when you become an active participant. Our mission here at Fountain of Life is to help others connect to God, their church, and their purpose. And I want to talk about that word purpose for a moment. Because if you're not actively loving, serving, like this church was, right? He committed them for their love, for their faith, for their serving, and their endurance. If you're not actively doing those things then you cannot possibly be connected to your purpose. The Bible teaches us that we show our faith by our works. And if we don't have any works, how do we show our faith? Amen? So we should all be ministering both inside and outside the walls of the church. And this constant improvement actually safeguards us against Satan's schemes. Have you ever heard that saying that sometimes the best defense is a great offense? Right? What that means in sports is that if you have a really good offense and maybe not a very good defense, but your offense is so exceptional, no one's going to be able to keep pace with you. You're just going to be able to outscore them. Well, in this scenario, I, I, I submit to you that when you're focused on pursuing holiness and you're focused on growing closer to God, and growing in your obedience to him and growing in your faith, you're not going to simultaneously be sinning at the same time. It's a simple concept. In other words, an hour dedicated to the gym is also an hour, hour not dedicated to junk food and television. And so there needs to be this focus to always improving in our life. 
So Pergamum seemed to have the ingredients for a very dynamic church. We're talking about love. We're talking about faith. We're talking about serving. We're talking about endurance. And that's a huge endorsement, which makes what Jesus says next probably a tough pill to swallow. He says in verse 20, I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, whoo, that's not a nice name to call somebody, by the way, to lead my servants astray, that Jezebel. How many of you, raise your hand if you know somebody named Jezebel. Oh my goodness, a hand actually went up. That, I did not see that coming, right? And why am I shocked? Because anybody who knows anything about Jezebel understands you probably don't want to name your children after that. Now, if you did name your child after Jezebel or you know somebody who does and they were ignorant of who Jezebel actually was, no judgment. Jesus loves that, Jezebel. Okay? But that's a name that has been avoided. It lives in infamy because of who this woman actually was. And so... Um, again, we see that compromise, just like in Pergamum, has led to a serious problem within the church. This woman was leading Christians astray through false teaching. Um, and so in verse 20, it says she teaches them to do what? To commit sexual sin and to eat food offers, offered to idols. Didn't we just talk about this last, last week? It was the same two things. Because here's the thing. The devil can't come up with anything new. But he also knows what works. And so he sticks with it. And so even though the time and the circumstances and the characters change, it's the same story, just different characters, but it's the same spirit behind it. So who was this actual woman, though? That, that's a question that we would love to have answered, isn't it? Who is this woman in this church? Because it was, in fact, a woman. Uh, Autumn pointed out earlier, the spirit was not female, Right? But in this scenario, it was a woman, and who was she? And what motivated her to do this? Now, here is just a theory. You guys okay to listen to a theory this morning? Because I think it's applicable whether it's true or not. But some theologians have wondered and pondered the idea of whether or not this woman could possibly be Lydia, who's someone who is talked about in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. She was the first convert and she was known as a seller of purple. This was one of the trades in Thyatira that they would, uh, they had like this dye that would come from a root in the ground and, and she would um, dye fabrics purple and sell them and that was her trade. And so as we mentioned earlier, if she was a part of that trade, she was likely a part of that trade guild as well. And so the pressure to conform would have been enormous. Perhaps she found herself in a place where it was either conform or go broke. Conform or be out of a job. Conform or be on the streets. And sometimes Christians can encounter scenarios where it gets tough and immediately we start to think, how can I have Jesus and still have a little bit of the world? And this is the problem, is this woman wanted to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We don't know if it was Lydia, but perhaps it's the same type of situation and pressure that she was facing. We don't know who she was, but we do know who the actual Jezebel was. 
So I want to explain to you who Jezebel was so you can understand the significance of this accusation and this label that was placed upon her. Now, Jezebel was queen of King Ahab, who was Israel's most wicked king. Dude was bad. Did bad, 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 bad things. And Jezebel came, married him, and introduced Baal worship to him. And so she took a very bad, evil king and made him even worse. And as a result, just the culture around just began to deteriorate and become more and more corrupt to the point where Ahab gave this man named Hiel permission to rebuild the forbidden city of Jericho in defiance of God. Now, if you remember the story of Jericho, you know the walls that came a-tumbling down, right? Or if you watch VeggieTales, keep walking, but she isn't gonna fall. Okay, so... The Israelites destroyed Jericho. Now afterwards, Joshua, in Joshua chapter 6, actually pronounces a curse upon Jericho. And he says, curse is the man that tries to rebuild this city. And he said, at the cost of his firstborn son will its foundations be established. At the, at the cost of his youngest son, its gates will be erected. And that's exactly what happened. This man began to rebuild the city, and he lost his firstborn son. But in his hardness of heart, he didn't stop there. He completed it, and when he erected the the gate to the city, he lost his other son. I mean, this is a dark time where people, uh, they're not even concerned about their children. They're pushing forward towards this evil. And Jezebel was a murderer of God's prophets. She hunted them down like dogs. At one point we read, um, I think in uh, 1 Kings, that 100 of them hid in caves as she hunted them down. How could such a thriving church in Thyatira that's known for its love and its faith and its endurance and its service allow something so horrendous to take place? Well, number one, it didn't look the same. It didn't look the same. And I'm sure if you were to compare this woman's sin to the sin of Jezebel's, Jezebel takes the cake, right? Maybe even the whole bakery, right? This is bad. But the spirit of Jezebel disguises itself. It starts small. It starts as that young python before it grows to something big enough to devour you. We fall into the trap so often of comparing our sin to those around us. And in the process, we are blind to the uh, threat that is before us. And we lie down in comfort with the thing that desires to consume us. See, our sin may not be as bad as Jezebel's, but that same spirit is behind it. And its desire is to not simply get you to stumble, but to destroy you. We can't become comfortable with sin. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter warns us. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, the devil's not looking to make you stumble. He's looking to devour you. So what is the appropriate way to respond to a threat like this? Man, he said it earlier. Cut it off. Cut it out of your life and pursue holiness. It says in verse 21, 
I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. First of all, I think it's important that we point out the fact that even this Jezebel spirit was given time to repent. The ticking clock of repentance begins immediately upon the moment that we fall into it. But you know what? Time is a gift that always runs out. And if we really think about it, isn't that what the book of Revelation is all about? A ticking clock. See, it's good news because it promises us that Jesus is coming back and he's going to set everything right and there's going to be no more suffering. There's not going to be any more hunger. There's not going to be any more mourning or pain. But it also is a warning that God in his mercy, there's an expiration date on that mercy because there's a day of judgment that's coming. And so, so often we can, we can uh, be okay and we can be comfortable in our sin and not realize we're in full rebellion against God. And we can become so comfortable where we are because things are going okay. But as it says in Romans, we're missing God's mercy, understanding he's being patient with us, giving us time to repent my prayer is that if you're in sin, that every time you hear the sound of a ticking clock, you'll be reminded of God's mercy and not to waste time. Now is the time for repentance. And so he, he breathes a pretty, pretty gruesome threat. He says, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. You ever heard that saying, uh, you made your bed, now lie in it? That's what he's saying. And what, what that statement means is there comes a time eventually where we will have to face the consequences of our actions, right? The, the, the misfortunes that we bring upon ourselves are coming, and we're going to have to face those, and there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it. And in this instance, it was time for this Jezebel, whose real name we don't know, to face the misfortunes she had brought upon herself, and in verse 23, he says, I will strike her children dead. What this is talking about is her followers, her spiritual children that follow her teaching. Jesus said that when people see his judgment, they'll be reminded that he sees the thoughts and intentions of their heart. If we want to pursue holiness, we have to do our own self-evaluation. That's number two. Keep self-evaluating. We have to regularly look within. In verse 23, he says, I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. It was David that prayed that prayer. He says, search my heart. Search it for anything that, that offends you. And we need to regularly do that. You know, a, a scale is useful for letting us know how much weight we're carrying around, right? The numbers reveal how much we're actually carrying. But guess what? When we don't want to change our lifestyle, when we don't want to get in shape, have you ever noticed that you avoid the scale? Which only makes it that much more shocking when you finally get on it, right? Whoa, I knew I was letting myself go. I did not know I had let myself go that far. But when we step on the scale and it reveals the extra weight that we're carrying, it can serve as a very powerful motivator for us. But we have to be willing to step on the scale. 
See, Jesus knows your intentions before you act on them. So what thoughts and intentions are you carrying? What if we started there? What if we were proactive instead of reactive? What if we pursued holiness instead of just repenting of our sin after the fact? The thoughts and intentions matter a lot. There's a quote that you've probably seen on a poster or bumper sticker or a meme, and it's been accredited to multiple different people, but it goes like this. It says, watch your thoughts. They become your words. Watch your words. They become your actions. Watch your actions. They become your habits. Watch your habits. They become your character. Watch your character. It becomes your destiny. See, asking God to evaluate your heart protects you from the slow fade of compromise. Have you noticed that over these past few weeks, there seems to be a pattern? We talked about the church in Ephesus and how they had lost their first love. Have you ever noticed that that tends to be the first step to compromise? Maybe you lost your first love. You lost, you, you forgot what it was all about. You lost your focus, and because of that, you laid down your guard, and you became vulnerable to temptation, and you begin to compromise. And that's what happened next in the church in Pergamum. They were the compromising church. They were doing well, but they were trying to have a little bit of the world. And then we see something expressed in the church of Thyatira that could be described as just all-out rebellion. Someone who not only uh, practices sexual immorality and worship of idols, but teaches other people in the church that they can do it too. That's a scary place to dwell. But we follow that same progression. It starts by neglecting our relationship with God. It's because we're not in pursuit of him and pursuit of holiness that we lose that passion, we lose that first love, and then compromise trickles in. What is that thing that you're attached to today? What is that thing that you're sleeping next to that wants to devour you? So then Jesus shifts his message. In verse 24, he says, I have a message also for you who have not followed this false teaching. And then he calls them the depths of Satan. That's a, that's a strong label to slap on something, the depths of Satan. He addresses those who have not yet fallen into this trap. And he refers, what he's referring to when he says depths of Satan is the teaching that there's a mingling of good and evil that's acceptable. So when he calls it the depths of Satan, what is he doing is he's taking a label. And he's slapping a label on that. It's like a warning label. Have you ever uh, seen uh, a warning label on the side of some pesticides or uh, some rat poison or something that says, poison, do not eat. The intention is that when someone sees that label, that um, uh, the appeal to consume what is in that package goes away. That they would be deterred from consuming it. But Satan does the exact opposite. He takes things that are poisonous, poisonous and he slaps a label on them. It says they're good. They're fun. They're enjoyable. They will not harm you. And it's important in our pursuit of holiness that we recognize sin for the poison that it is. This revelation is something we can never forget. 
We've got to hold on to it. Which is point number three. Keep holding on. He says in verse 25, to those of you who haven't fallen into this, hold tightly to what you have. I ask you nothing else but that you would just hold tightly to what you have. You know, sometimes we reach a point where we just get tired of holding on. I'm talking to somebody in the room today. You reach that point where you're just tired of holding on. And as he does in all of these letters to the churches, there's a promise of a reward. It says in verse 26, to all who are victorious, who obey to the very end. There's a reward coming. Now what's very interesting about this letter is it's the first letter where he mentions very end. He, he ends them all the same. Like to all who are victorious, you'll get this. So this church, if you're victorious, you'll get this reward. This is the first one where he says, all who endured to the very end. He's emphasizing that they need to finish what they've started. That they need to hold on to the end and emphasizing that there is an end. See, just like there's an end to the time for us to repent, there's gonna be an end to the temptation that we face. There's gonna be an end to the suffering that we're going through. There's gonna be an end to the trial that you're up against right now. That's good news. You can always hold on a little longer when you can see the finish line. When you can see that the end is in sight. And throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus just wants to remind us that the end is getting closer and closer. And the closer it gets, the tighter we need to hold on. He says, I will give them authority over all the nations. So I mentioned that this was a small church, right? Small church got the longest letter out of all seven of these letters. Think about that. The smallest church, seemingly the most insignificant church, right? If we're judging everything like we do today by numbers, how full the building is, they get the longest letter. How could a church so small and so significant get so much attention? Because in God's eyes, it's not the size that's significance. See, this, this small church with little influence he promised if they stayed faithful to the end that they'd be put in charge, that they'd actually rule alongside of him. Fountain, our number one goal today, as we look around at the, some of the empty seats at some of these tables, or we look at all the excess space we have to add tables and chairs, remember that what is number one significant in God's eyes is that you hold on and you stay faithful. And I guarantee you, he's looking at us with those eyes of fire and those eyes pierce down into the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so every decision we make, you gotta understand there are eternal implications and consequences, both good and bad. And as you walk in obedience to him, as you walk with your life fully surrendered in him, you're preparing yourself to rule alongside him for eternity. 
Sometimes we can belittle the significance of our influence. And that way of thinking leads to a lot of bad decisions, right? Because if I don't think the good I can do can make much of a difference, I might just remain inactive. And on the flip side, if I think that some of the bad I do isn't really gonna hurt that much, I stand to be devoured. Understand that this church is big in God's eyes. And your influence is huge. And your prayers shake the heavens. And your ministry saves lives and impacts eternity. Verse 27, he describes how they will rule with an iron rod. And they'll smash the nations like clay pots. I'm not sure exactly what that means other than that what I think is really trying to be portrayed is the authority that's gonna be ours. And what I love about this is God is giving this small church an eternal purpose. Verse 28, he says, I will also give them the morning star. Jesus has referred a few times as the morning star in the Bible. So I believe the promise here is that they will dwell and rule alongside Jesus in all of his glory. And it reminds me of Revelation 21, 22, and 23. It says, I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. Would you stand with me this morning? The Christian life is an eternal investment that pays out in a measurable profit. And I just wanna challenge you this morning to evaluate yourself. Are you still growing? Are you actively pursuing greater things in the Lord? Are you pursuing holiness? Or do you find yourself getting tangled up in the things of the world? Have you made a son, a, an honest evaluation of yourself recently? Or maybe you're here this morning, you're just struggling to hold on. You feel like you're clinging by your fingertips and you're just being dragged around and you're not sure you can hold on much longer. Whatever it is, I believe that the Lord wants to speak to you today. So first, I'd like to invite uh, any elders that I may have available, if you guys could come to the front. And the team's gonna lead us into worship and um, I'll be up here available. We've got some elders up here available to pray with you. You also have at your table, you have table hosts. And if you wanna just lean over to them and say, hey, would you pray for me? They're available to pray for you as well. But as the team leads us, I just challenge you to, to come before God and to evaluate yourself. Consider, am I growing? Am I actively pursuing holiness? Or am I struggling to hold on? And I just need God to remind me that it's gonna be worth it. I need him to sustain me in this time. So if that's you, I just invite you to come out of your seats, out of your tables, and find someone down here to pray for you, or find someone at your table to pray for you. The team's going to go ahead and lead us in a song this morning.
Thank you, Father. Lord, I just praise you, God. Father, we just collectively as a church, God, we lay down the things that uh, we become familiar with. 
the things that don't belong or have any place in our life, Lord. God, I, I pray that you would uh, help us to not fall for the deception that true happiness or true life is found in mingling the two. God, in reality, the fullness of life is found in Jesus and no one else. And you have come that we would have life and life to the full, life abundantly. And God, I pray that your church, God, would trade in the things of this world for the things of God so that we could step fully into the life you have for us, Lord. Make us effective. Uh, God, make us burned for you. Make us passionate for you, Lord Jesus. Uh, let, us, let us shine the light of Christ into our communities and our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces, Lord. God, let us step into the destiny you have for us as a church, Father. God, I thank you for those that you have set free today, those that you, they have laid things down and surrendered them to you. And I pray, God, in Jesus' name, that they not pick them up again, but they leave them at the altar, Lord Jesus. They've been nailed to the cross. They've been crucified along with the, the flesh and its, and its desires. And God, I thank you for the resurrection life that you give so freely to us, Lord. Father, bless this church and make us into the church that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we just give God some praise this morning? He's good. You know, sometimes, sometimes the best truth that we need to hear is the hardest truth to hear. And for some of you, this might have been that moment for you. It was hard to hear. But man, when we embrace the truth, God heals us. Amen. Um, so God bless you guys. Hope you have a wonderful day today. Uh, enjoy your Super Bowl get-togethers. If you are new here, I encourage you to stay for our meet and greet um, across the hall for, at Fountain Connect. We've got a few snacks we can share with you. I'd love to get to know you a little bit better. We'll see you over there. Mm-hmm.